0: This is Talking Beats. Welcome, I'm Daniel Lelchuk. On today's program, we're speaking with musician, satirist, and of course, voice actor Harry Shearer. A former cast member of Saturday Night Live and co-star of This Is Spinal Tap. Since 1989, he's been the voice behind more than 10 characters on the legendary television show The Simpsons the Grammy-nominated and Emmy Award-winning entertainer, has been for decades delighting millions the world over with his wit and uncanny focal talent. Harry Shearer, welcome.
1: Thanks so much.
0: So have you always been funny?
1: <laughs> uh, soon, I hope. I grew up in a family that loved comedy. They had been through unimaginable nastiness, to put it mildly, in their lives and uh, I think they, they clung to music and comedy as the two sources of, of light in a world that had been uh, quite full of darkness for them. So I, I remember listening to comedy shows with my family over dinner. This would be in the last waning days of uh, network radio. I think the first time I realized that my sense of humor differed from that of my, at least my mother, was I was addicted to uh, a comedy team on the radio uh, in the 1950s, known as Bob and Ray, and she'd come by watching me listen to it and, and cracking up and just go, shake, you know, shake her head and go, "I don't know what you're laughing at." <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I we we agreed on Bob and Ray and and Bob, uh, we agreed on Jack Benny and Bob Hope and everything, but the line came down at uh, Bob and Ray, and then uh in that period i my dad had gotten a tape recorder and so i had a, a few of my friends over and we'd kind of make up little radio shows of our own comedy things in junior high i had a co-conspirator who worked with me on a uh usually like a little four-page humor magazine. <laughs> then in college uh university uh where i was going to be serious and grown up, I was uh, sort of ushered away from the, uh, the school newspaper after three years and found myself at the Humor magazine as the editor. So uh, I had to be funny again there. So I guess, yeah, more, more or less. So that's a long yes.
0: So what is it with, with kids in music and kids in comedy? So obviously if a kid can play the Beethoven violin concerto when he's 10 and flawlessly they say he's really talented or maybe he's a prodigy. With with comedy, it's one thing to get the jokes and find things funny that maybe your parents didn't. But do you think you were actually funny or did they think he's a silly little kid and uh, he has no good taste in humor and uh, when he turns nine, he'll grow out of it?
1: Well, you know, the, the two things really are, uh, comedy and music, are are very, very subtly related. First of all, I was being almost, uh, in, almost in the most uh, dubious sense of the word, trained, as a concert, as a pianist because i had i had eight years of lessons with a very serious uh teacher but you know i got away with murder i you know all the her other students were practicing eight hours a day and i was giving her one but still i knew what the the routine of that was kind of like or was supposed to be like but the the connection uh, that i'm thinking of is as i say a, a subtler one the best story to Indicate that was and uh, my mom felt tell, tells this story or told this story i I didn't remember it firsthand, but there were several kids that worked uh on the Jack Benny show, the Jack Benny program, of which I was one, and she recalled uh another kid who was on the show one one day it was dress rehearsal at the end uh, as she tells it, he said to uh Jack Benny, Mr. Benny, can I ask you a question and Benny says, Sure he said when the audience is laughing, how long do I wait before I talk? And my mom's punchline was, he never worked for Jack Benny again. <laughs> so even at a uh, at a tender age, you were supposed to, you know, that's nothing you can learn. Uh, he couldn't say, here, here, kid, here's the answer. You either know it or you don't, in the same way that uh, you, you either have an ear for a, a musical note or they all sound the same or they all sound whatever it sounds like to people who who can't hear it, I, I wouldn't know. That's basically a rhythmic thing was being talked about in that particular sense. Uh, the, the comedy is, is, is a music of rhythms. It's also obviously a music of inflections. But the rhythms really dictate whether you're in the game at all, as, as Benny's response to that question indicated.
0: So you mentioned casually being on the Jack Benny show, but it happened that your piano t- teacher, to whom you gave an hour a day instead of eight hours, up and left one day and, what, became an agent for kids, for talented kids, uh, to go into that Hollywood?
1: Piano, that was my first piano teacher. That wasn't the really serious one. The really serious one uh, mar- marked her lineage back to Czerny. But, yes, they, the my first piano teacher, uh, I like to think that I encouraged her to give up that, that line of work. So
0: it's a blessing you didn't she practice.
1: Had a daughter who was uh, an actress at the time, so she was proposing to use her contacts to... Uh, be a children's agent for other other kids, and she pitched my parents. And for eight months, we didn't hear anything from her, and we thought it was like a family joke. And then one day she called and had a reading for me at the Jack Benny program, and I went in, and I was a very good reader. Uh, I, I got the job and worked for him for uh, eight years.
0: What was the audition like for a seven-year-old? I mean, you, you went in and literally read like a 20-year-old would do?
1: Yeah, I mean, there was an office at, at Hollywood & Vine in the Taft building, uh, a gentleman by the name of Hilliard Marks who I later learned was uh, Jack Benny's brother-in- law, was running the auditions, and he they gave me you know some pages to read, and uh, I read them. yeah, nothing, nothing, you know, no, no no lollipops involved,
0: okay, no lollipops. So you're in acting yeah. as a kid now. Your parents want you to have a normal childhood, uh, fast forward a few years, you go to college, et cetera, et cetera. So do you want to be a politician? Still fast forwarding?
1: No, I never wanted to be a politician. I, I thought about working in government a far more serious uh, occupation if you ask me or uh, you know some maybe something in international relations I studied Russian for five years because I thought that might be a thing
0: when did music come back into your life
1: in a big sense music never left my life I stopped taking piano when I went to college because I thought I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't even have an hour a day as a part of my life I think my high school years were some of the most intense in terms of my my connection with music. I I was two years ahead of my grade. I mean, I was in, in a grade two years ahead of my age. So my cohort were not at all anybody that I recognized as peers. They seemed to me like Martians. So I, and I had a I was an only child, and my my dad had died by that point. So it was a, a small world I lived in. So, music was a huge part of it. I remember walking around the halls of, of my high school or my junior high, probably, humming to myself as I walked from one class to another uh, the Nelson Riddle arrangements on the classic uh, Frank Sinatra Capitol records, just hearing them full on in my head. I, I had, I guess, well, I don't know, uh, certainly marked from that point onward, I had an ear for arrangements. I took those arrangements apart and listened to like, okay, this is what the trombones are doing and this is what the saxes are doing. And this is what the, the bass is doing. And just would hum different parts of those arrangements and feel really emotionally connected to them. It wasn't a technical exercise. It was really, this music moved me. I didn't really pick up an instrument again until I met a woman who was to become my first wife. And she was a, a musician and a singer. I don't know if she suggested it or it just struck me as an interesting thing to do at that point but as I say my mind my ear had gone among other places when I was listening to music to bass to like Ray Brown's bass parts and the Nelson Riddle stuff and, and then later to the you know James Jamerson and, and Motown Records and so uh, I got the cheapest imaginable I think it was a three quarter size Japanese probably made out of plywood bass and got some lessons and took some lessons my wife my first wife was a friend of uh... the bass player but blood sweat and tears and so uh... he gave me a few lessons and i just set off on my uh... project to learn the rest of it as slowly as humanly possible
0: so you had a background in piano you're learning the bass and you're listening to all kinds of music at that time or or what what were you listening to? yeah
1: I started my my basis was uh... my father had been trained to be a uh, operatic tenor in vienna before uh the unpleasantness so our house was filled with classical music and we went to concerts and everything but uh, my folks also had a a quite a pop music collection which i still have they were on 78s and i plow through those and then as i say i started you know listening to the radio and hearing sinatra and ella meltorme I, I was a musical snob. I didn't care at all for the first iterations of of rock and roll, and then uh, got zero converted by the Beatles. Actually, that that one chord in Hard Day's Night. Oh, they know more than three chords, do they? <laughs> um, then you know, just totally absorbed uh, that era of rock and roll going forward for you know a number of decades, and then discovered. I didn't discover it that i i found it for me it had been there uh brazilian music and bluegrass i don't really know how i got into bluegrass but i did so just all sorts of different kinds and and then you know to continue to listen i had a taste in uh, uh, because i grew up on the west coast in uh, what was called west coast jazz which was based more on arrangements than on uh solo improvisation so that was where my ear went anyway but then, you know, picked up other kinds of jazz as well. Picked up on other kinds of jazz. You know, Coltrane and the Blue Note guys in the 60s. And just kept pursuing each of those strands forward as, as life went on. So, yeah, I was always exploring music. I mean, I, I have, to this day, a, a disgustingly huge collection of vinyl. And a pretty now close to that collection of CDs. CDs? What are those?
0: Never heard of them. Yeah. Okay, so talk a little about... About satire, because I think it's a misunderstood word, and it's different than humor. And And how is it different being satirical versus just being funny?
1: I think, uh, I, I can't say where just being funny comes from, but satire, I think, comes from anger. <laughs> You're just pissed off at the way the world is. It is one way to get back, is to just highlight the absurdity of it. I guess if forced to have I been forced to? I think I think the closest I came to writing comedy as opposed to satire was when I was a writer on this obscure unfairly obscure show in the uh late seventies called Fernwood Tonight and I would write with Martin Mull the opening parts of the show and I, I think that was pretty much comedy. We just would make each other laugh and, and write it down. But you know, even even the other even the film stuff, like I mean, Spinal Tap is a satire, and you can call it an affectionate satire, I guess. But and and Mighty Wind is a satire too, of a certain brand of of um, late model folk music. So there's a you know there's a kernel there's a there's a there's a a, a grain of sand that makes an oyster grow a pearl. Is that the how that works? Of irritation that, for, that forms the basis of what I think is funny, I guess you know pomposity, hypocrisy, all the, all the great crises, Uh, to me, that's what, what, uh, where I go. That's, that's my, where I'm thinking, what's, what should I do this week? What should I write about this week? That's sort of where I go. It's like, who's, who's driven me crazy? It is the basis of the people I decide to uh, do as characters. You know, people who, for one reason or another, if I've seen them on television, I just go, oh, please, which have not tended to be actors like most people who can do impressions, uh, they pretended to be people in or of the news.
0: So, speaking about that, uh, your radio program, which airs every week, is called Le Show, and it's been on since, what, 1983? Yeah. And it's a kind of a unique mélange of, of actual news. There is some actual news items. There's, there's music in it, both original and not, and, of course, satire. Mm-hmm. And there's a segment mm-hmm. in it, for those who haven't heard, called Cars I Talk, where... Mm-hmm um the the kind of ultimate satire because it it highlights the outrageous length and cost and and ultimately death toll of the american war in afghanistan Mm -hmm. and it's told through these two brothers in a an abandoned american truck on a base in kabul I'm, obviously, we know where it came from, but what made you say that you have to make a commentary on the longest running war that we've had and and you would use yeah, these well, um, these two brothers I, as a vehicle
1: you know I, I I lived through the era of the Vietnam War, and so the the scenario of the United States lying itself into an intractable and losing conflict was real familiar to me it was It was like mother's milk so when it when we start living through it again i i you know that's when i realized uh as i say sometimes homo is not sapiens uh we just don't fucking learn of course iraq uh occupied my my mind from the the years that that had taken center stage away from afghanistan because it was even more ghoulish and and because the the lies were more baroquely grand but it—it's one day. I can't explain it. But you know, I, first of all, the other—the other, the other uh, predisposition was that I hated car talk. I just despised it.
0: <laughs> Why? It Why? Was,
1: I thought it was the pinnacle of NPR's embrace of amateurism in broadcasting. <laughs> uh, you know, people who laugh at their own jokes should should not be in comedy. That's <laughs> just that's rule I have based on having worked once with Red Skelton, it just seemed, you know, it's just like having your uncle over. But you don't put him on on national radio. And, you know, of course, he was beloved at NPR. Uh, They were beloved at NPR. And so one day, and I was, the minute it occurred to me, I thought, what the fuck is wrong with you that it took this long? The the phrase Karzai talk came into mind uh, (laughs) after President Karzai left office. Uh, What would he be doing now? He'd be doing a, a, a stupid talk show with his brother, and they'd be laughing at each other's jokes, <laughs> and that was it.
0: <laughs> so, so when, w- when did when was the first episode of of Cars I talk? It's or it's a fragment. What are they? Three minutes apiece or something? Four minutes?
1: No, no, they tend to be like about five or six minutes. That tends to be unless I'm writing like a, a parody commercial or something. A lot of the stuff I write, or a song, uh, a lot of stuff I write tends to be like at about six minutes. Uh, I figure it's time to wrap it up. I don't, I don't think that I, it just, it turns out to be the way it is, you know, it turns out to be, there's, a, there's about six minutes worth of comedy here.
0: I, I have to confess that when I go to listen to the show, if I'm not in a city where it's being broadcast on the radio and I listen online, the first thing I look for is if there's a Cars I Talk segment and, uh, <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I have to ask you, have you bought the t-shirt yet?
0: Uh, yeah, I have it, but it's shrunk in the wash, so I can't wear it anymore.
1: The thing you do, you know you know what you do when that t- that happens? Tell me. You buy another one.
0: Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> it took a long time to come. I thought it was actually coming from Afghanistan.
1: <laughs> no, that's just to... Uh, I have no idea why it takes a long time, because, <laughs>
0: because
1: certainly uh, they aren't churning them out that fast. But yeah, Karzai was a, a, uh, a figure that had sort of poked through the general run of foreigners who were involved in American wars because he had a, a, a unique fashion sense, <laughs> the green robe thing, <laughs> and he, he was a survivor in a uh, place that the, the, the more you learn about it, the more you realize survival is the only virtue there.
0: So, I, I hate to ask this, because you probably hate it, The Simpsons. Um, do, do you hate being asked about The Simpsons? I mean, we're 22 minutes no, in I now.
1: No, I don't hate being asked about The Simpsons. I dislike being asked about Saturday Night Live because I'd talked about it to me a nauseum. No, I it, my my attitude toward The Simpsons is simply that's a show I work on. I have nothing to do with writing it or the comedic direction of it, so it occupies a, a wonderful place in my life. It's made possible all sorts of things that would not be possible otherwise. But it's not my creation. One's creations are always a little little closer to the heart
0: are you passionate about the show or is it is it literally just a, a job you go in and you read you know how to do the voices you know how to no, do I mean, it
1: i had always said if i anybody asked and i had to voice this sentiment aloud, but I, I felt i never wanted to be on a traditional tv comedy you know sitcom because the idea of playing the same character week after week after week to me was the ultimate soul destroyer I like doing multiple characters it's something you know whether I'm on screen or not it's something I do and I do pretty well and it's it keeps me interested and so the idea of playing all these different your number more than ten I think it's more than two dozen characters means one gets to at least to the the extent of, of vocal performance inhabiting a bunch of different kinds of characters. And that keeps that keeps things much more
0: interesting. So let me ask two sort of related. They're short questions, and, and they're probably stupid questions, but I don't know the answers. So when mm-hmm. it's time to come up with a voice, do you, you have it, or you go into the lab and you, you fiddle around in the voice laboratory, and, and then an hour later you've got it?
1: No, it's th- that makes it sound more analytical and, and sort of industrial than it is. Going back to the origin story of when this all started, the character i as far as i know the characters hadn't been drawn already if they had been i and i think the rest of the cast members hadn't seen them so my first idea of what a character what one of these characters was was I'd see a script and there'd be a line or two in the stage directions describing that person. I would just make the best way to describe it as an intuitive leap, a a less uh, fancy-schmancy way of describing it as a dumb guess as to what that person sounded like, and I figured if it was wrong, they'd stop me, and if it wasn't wrong, I'd keep doing it for 35 years. (laughs) There were only two that were based on anybody that I, quote, knew, unquote, but in neither case were they people that I knew personally there were people that i knew from the media but otherwise they were just made up
0: and in terms of voice acting what are some of the people who you look towards the past and you said wow he's amazing i mean i know you were associated with mel blank early on were there other people yeah, i mean
1: mel blank mel blank was was uh i think the towering figure in in all of that he was a cast member on the jack benny program as well which is where i got to know him There was never, ever, ever, ever a moment when he said, hey, kid, here's how you do voices. So that that theory goes away. But his work is just, you know, towering, as I say. He found something just crazily funny about each of the characters that he could do. You know, I I was in a hotel in New York once. I've been in hotels in New York more than once, but on this particular occasion, a hotel that plays old films and cartoons in the elevator with the sound off. Uh No, the sound is on, I think. Anyway, they play these old things in the elevator just to keep you from wanting to kill yourself. Among the, the things that they showed were old Tom and Jerry cartoons. And I'm watching them going up to the 67th, the something floor, and thinking, you know, these are well-drawn, and the stunts, the, the gags are funny, visual gags are funny, and yet Tom and Jerry is basically an artifact of the past, and Looney Tunes, you know, keeps living in uh, one form or another. Why is that? Ah, Tom and Jerry didn't have voices. And uh, I've used that argument in terms of The Simpsons and its many versions overseas. But it's true. You know, the voices of all those characters that Mel Blanc created gave them so much more dimension in life than either Tom or Jerry had. So I, I'd, I'd have to say Mel Blanc. I was in awe, as I say, of Bob and Ray, who were great vocal artists, who did all sorts of different characters. Each one was, was in its own way, just hilariously funny. Just, again, little, little... It's the observation of little things that nobody listening might even notice, but that just as, in the same way that, that you know, a, a, a certain... Degree of musical technique can just hike a performance without the person, the, the listener being aware. Oh, he's a master of tremolo. <laughs> you know, it's just the observation of little things that can make something, uh, to me, just ridiculously funny. And Bob and Ray were masters of that.
0: Tremolo is pretty easy to do, by the way.
1: I know, I know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, it, as,
1: far it, as, as far as I'm concerned, you just put a button, push a button on the amp. Yeah.
0: <laughs> So if you can zoom out for a minute, and obviously you've been on stage for a long time and I I don't want to date you, but probably when you were growing up there were uh, Schoenbergs and Stravinskys roaming around Southern California still. What is sort of allowed and has, has comedy been and satire been sort of squeezed as the decades have gone on? We're now in 2020. What's the best way to navigate what you can and can't do?
1: You know, uh, first of all, two, two, two prongs to the answer. One is, like jazz, satire is one of those fields where every uh, five or ten years, Time Magazine and, and Newsweek will do covers. Satire's back. Jazz is back. <laughs> and then, you know, somehow they go away so they can come back again. I was in a comedy group in the 1970s. Twenty-two years later, one of the men, the older One of the members of the group uh, passed away, and I was going through the material we'd done on the radio to pay uh, tribute to him on my radio show. And I was struck by what we did in the 70s, which was, I mean, I recalled it, but I, you know, we did lots of sketches involving racists of various sorts, among other things. And when we did, and we were on, you know, broadcast radio, we had racists talking like racists talk, like you want any character to talk the way they talk. I was going through some of the material as i say for richard's uh, for a tribute to richard richard Beebe, and i realized oh i can't play that on the radio now but at the same time i had a, 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 an antecedent of my own show at that time and i was doing a, a parody of this guy on the radio in los angeles in that era very successful middle of the day talking on the telephone to women about their love life called the feminine forum the host did the, the it was a was a loquacious former dj but he, he loved words and he would create these rococo euphemisms for the male member uh in talking to the housewives <laughs> i shouldn't say the housewives the women at the other end of the poem <laughs> i did a ta- a, pay, a parody of that on my show where i just scraped away the euphemisms and, and had him call it what it was and i got fired and the the general manager of the radio station mr moorhead i called him mr sorham said to me as, you know, in my exit interview, I could have understood if you'd said shit or fuck, but penis, like that was (laughs) so out there. So flash forward to the 90s when you can't say the N-word anymore, even out of the mouth of a racist, but Howard Stern gets paid half a billion dollars a year for saying penis on the radio. So (laughs) this made me realize that there is probably a Newtonian conservation of taboo there's the the there's there's a certain amount of taboo taboo a society needs, but it shifts, it shifts, it's it's tabooing to different targets as time moves on. So things that were taboo are no longer, and things that were no weren't taboo now are. So I think, you know, satire functions within that construct. To me, uh, and this is a minority opinion, it all depends on if you're going to be transgressive and transgression of is of one way you you got to be really funny and if you're really funny if I'm laughing that was Richard Pryor's secret you were laughing so hard you didn't notice that uh, he was breaking taboos all over the place until later so many people I, I think a lot of people uh, at this point in time think transgression is the act the act is being funny while being transgressive and a lot of the controversies that I see it's like uh, and I'm asked for an opinion on it. It's like, yeah, but you know, if you're going to say that, you got to do it in a way that's funny, or or you're just trying to piss people
0: off. So that's my take on that. Offer us a little comfort in the time of lockdowns and quarantines and and COVID statistics. Uh, tell us some good music to listen to, will you?
1: I, I like so much different music. As they say, I'm I'm a fan right now of of uh, a bluegrass band called Frank Sullivan and Dirty Kitchen. I'm a, a a big fan of a Brazilian producer and singer called Lenine. He's gotten a little croony in his later records, but in his early records, Celso Fonseca was was great, amazing. I I'm a, having been brought up on classical music. I I'm ashamed to say that I came late to a full appreciation of what a genius Debussy was. I I heard in London at a noontime concert series somebody do a. Uh, I think it was Debussy's own piano transcription of La Mer, which is, I mean, as amazing as it is as an orchestral piece, it's just mind-bending as a as a piano solo piece. And it similarly, came late to uh, Bizet's uh, Symphony in C, which I love more and more as, uh, the more I hear it. That's a I, lovely I, piece. I, that
0: that's a totally underrated uh, piece, the Symphony in C by Bizet.
1: Especially the, the the fourth movement, but all of it. I got crazy into Brahms in my teenage years, and I've never giving it up. I actually, I don't know if you've heard this, this is, all of this is worth hearing. Out on the internet now, it's a, a concert, a CBS radio broadcast of the New York Philharmonic. Bernstein conducting and Glenn Gould is the soloist. And it starts with Bernstein doing a four minute apology for the performance that's about to pers- to, to ensue. Because he disagrees so much with Glenn Gould's interpretation of uh, Brahms' piano concerto. I believe it's the, uh,
0: yeah, I think it's the first one, the D minor, isn't it?
1: Yes, yes, that's it. Yeah, that that's a and, famous
0: video. It's amazing.
1: And you've heard the performance, right? Yes. My wife is a musician, and, and, and a brilliant one, and she never got into Brahms. I heard this performance, and I realized what must have ticked her off about the other ones, which is that conductors really emphasize the bombastic side of his stuff, and what in my mind Glenn Gould was doing with this interpretation was just casting it as a totally romantic piece, just emphasizing the romanticism of it. And it just, it's, its it blows me away. It's really remarkable.
0: You know, one thing about Brahms, last thing I'll say is there were two famous conductors alive during his lifetime, Hans von Bülow and Otto Nikisch. And they both did his pieces completely differently. One did a mm. super indulgent, taking time all over the place and really kind of, and we heard it today, we would think of it as a distortion. The other did a a very spry, very strict version, nothing alike, and he loved them both. He absolutely loved them both and and found that they both had a lot of merit, and he was very flexible from what we know in terms of what he liked as an interpretation. As
1: a composer, you better be ready for that, because, you know, unless you're going to conduct all your own works... That's what's going to happen, and then you know from the other side of music, still Sinatra on Capitol with Nelson Riddle, or Ella with Nelson Riddle, and all her, on the I guess Verve mainly, are still the the high water marks of that era of vocal pop music performance. For rock and roll, I I can't think of a better band in the last 20 years than than Fountains of Wayne, whose whose co-leader just passed away. Brilliantly funny songs, you know, great. Great. Again, little surprises, little musical surprises, little things that don't call attention to themselves, but just deepen what the music is doing.
0: Harry Shearer, thank you so much. Hey,
1: thank you. It a pleasure.
0: You've been listening to Talking Beats. The music discussed today is available in a playlist on my Spotify or anywhere you get your music. The original music is composed by Ronald Markham. The producer is Doug Christian. I'm Daniel Melchuk. See you next time.